we are very glad that you're here. And uh, we are going to talk about uh, specifically, uh, they worked that song in because it has a line in there about the year of Jubilee. And we're going to talk about that uh, this morning. Uh, about um, two months ago, I think it was, Michael came in the door Sunday morning and he said, he said, I want you to do a lesson on the year of Jubilee. Well, he knows I'm a sucker for anything that has to do with types of the Old Testament. And so it didn't take much prodding to get me interested in that subject and begin to look into it. And I think it is interesting. Uh, most of the time you would look at, if someone was to, were to say to you, hey, we're going to preach this morning out of the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, that would be one that would cause you probably to roll your eyes back in your head and to think, what else could I possibly think about? Because there could be nothing that really would be of interest in that. But I think we're going to find something that is, and, um, it, and it, does, it does have application to us, and specifically applications with regards to us being thankful. Uh, we know that in America we're celebrating Thanksgiving this week, and and uh, did that on Thursday, and so a lot of people are focused on that, and I think this kind of, this lesson really dovetails with that. I know John, a couple of weeks, did a wonderful, uh, weeks ago, did a wonderful job in looking at, from a uh, physical standpoint, as to how we should be thankful for the things that we have in this life, and it's very true. Um, we're gonna take more of a spiritual look at that same subject this morning uh, through the idea of Jubilee. And so I, I want to first start talking uh, about types. Uh, many years ago, I was reading uh, in the book of Exodus, and um, I was reading some interesting stories there, and I got to chapter 34. I was a younger Christian, and so didn't really understand anything about types. But I got to about chapter 34, and it began to describe in very uh, detail, very strong detail, about the building of the tabernacle and, why, and the materials they used and the, the length of those things and the height of those things and the colors of those things. And it's like, goes on for chapter after chapter, and you're thinking, what, why spend all the time? Why does that matter? Well, it was only later when I began to look in the book of Hebrews that I realized that those things in that tabernacle were a portrayal of Jesus Christ. And so suddenly I went from no interest to a whole lot of interest. And, and I think that can be true for, for a lot of people is you don't really understand it until you begin to look into it and then you find something that's Below the surface, it's really quite fascinating. Um, so just thinking about the power of types. So there's, a, there's an old saying, I think this is attributed to a, a guy named Augustine that was about a fourth century uh, believer. And he says that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. In other words, that if you lived under the old law, you got all this instruction, you really didn't understand how it fit into the big picture, the big plan. Now, in fairness, they could certainly obey those laws and rules and things they were told to do, but they didn't understand the big picture. And so the New Testament 
is an Old Testament, is the Old Testament that's revealed because from this side of the cross and from this side of the writings in the New Testament, we can look back through those things and understand that those things in the Old Testament were really shadows that give us some final detail and understanding of the nature of Jesus. But all of the Bible, the entire Bible, is really about this. It's about Jesus Christ. And so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to hold you in any suspense this morning that I will tell you right up front, the year of Jubilee is guess what? It's about Jesus Christ. And, and to try to portray it as something else would be ridiculous because we know that our blessings, our spiritual blessings, uh, reside in him. You know, if, if you were an Old Testament person, you lived on the old law, it would be akin to working a puzzle to try to understand God's manifold wisdom and understanding. It would be like trying to work uh, a very complicated puzzle with real small pieces without looking at the box. It would be really hard, wouldn't it? I mean, you could eventually get there maybe, but it would be very difficult. So they had a lot of challenges. The Apostle Paul said, even in the New Testament, at the time of their writings, he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, realizing that there was a time that the, Old Te that the New Testament would finally be assembled and we would be able to look back and we would be able to see. And we would have a better understanding than they could possibly have. Jesus said it this way. He says that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So those things were written before, even the law of Moses. In the book of Leviticus, yes. Um, I actually have a book that's, that refers to it as the gospel in Leviticus, and it's true. It's it's, it's there, it's, it's writing of Jesus, but it's doing it um, through this, this language of types. And he opened an understanding that they might comprehend the scripture. So he, he gave these disciples the ability to look through and to see and to understand. Now, one thing, I, I, before we get into the details of this, I want us to understand that the Old Testament was a physical blessings or cursings. And in the New Testament, that's not true. You know, the, in the New Testament, it's spiritual. You know, if, if uh, someone, the children of Israel, if they disobeyed, there was, a, there was a recompense of reward right then and there. They paid for that. And as we know, as the children of Israel began to stray and do things contrary to God's uh, will, he walked away from them. He let them suffer consequences based on that. We know that that's true. But you know what? In this life, you can live as a sinner and you might be all right. And so, you know, some people get discouraged as Christians because they look and they see people that are doing well in this life and thinking, well, why didn't God strike them down? He did in the Old, Old Testament, but it's different. So the price that they will pay is in the world to come. It's a salvation that will be afforded to those who are obedient in this life and, and not necessarily. Now, God will bless you for doing well, uh, but, but your greater blessing is in, in, the, uh, in the spiritual realm, 
in the New Testament. And so uh, we want to keep that in mind as we look at these passages this morning. So the first thing I want to look at is the Sabbath. The Sabbath. We know that that was instituted in Genesis chapter 2, but we're going to look at it from the standpoint of uh, Exodus chapter 20, where God has revealed to Moses the Ten Commandments. And he says in verse 8 of chapter 20, he says, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your sons, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger which is in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. You ever think about that God created the world in six days, and it says then on the seventh day he rested? Do you think God was tired? Ever thought about that? And I don't suppose to know the nature of God any more than anyone else, uh, except what he's revealed to us. So perhaps God does get tired. But my best guess is that it was merely a pause and it was done to put in effect this, this idea of seven, this idea of completeness. Uh, the number seven, the number seven is used in the Bible 463 different times. It's commonly understood as the number of completion. And we know that one week, seven days, makes one week. It's a, that's a complete week. It took seven days to populate the ark. There were seven persons on the ark. There were seven of each of the clean animals. We know that we think about it. They went two by two. Uh, but that was the unclean animals. Actually, there were seven of the clean animals. There were seven years of feast seven years of famine upon Egypt, seven priests with seven trumpets encompassed the walls of Jericho for seven days, seven years in the building of Solomon's temple, seven years of Babylonian captivity, and we can go on and on and on, but the example after example is seven was the, was the time of completion, and then there was usually something else that happened. And, and so in the case of the Lord, he did six days of work and it was followed by uh, a, a day of rest. So now let's look at uh, Leviticus chapter 25. And in this passage, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, when you, come into the, when you come into the land which I will give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Then the land. So they were already keeping the Sabbath in terms of days. They would keep that weekly. But he says this, that six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard, and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a question 
that pops in my head right away. What are we going to eat in the seventh year? Are you kidding? The field's not supposed to be planted? How, how is this going to work? Well, God answered that question in verse 20. And he said, If you say, What shall we eat in the seventh year, since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce? Then I will command my blessings upon you in the sixth year and bring forth a pro produce enough for three years. So think about it this way. Is that really, it was a reminder of God's presence with them. Think about it. Every, every seven years, you would have this enormous bumper crop. Now, so if you're, uh, if you're an adult and you've lived through several of these bumper crops and it's happening every seven years, that is a constant reminder that God is there to, to save you. God is there to provide for you. So you were to work for six years, but in the seventh year, you were to do nothing because God had laid up this, this huge harvest up front for you, so you have to worry about it. It was there. It was in the barn. It was ready to be consumed. And not only so, but he actually did it for three years. Now, that's going to be real important here in a minute because when we get to the year of Jubilee, we're going to find that that was actually part of the year of Jubilee. And so there are going to be two years in a row that they were not going to sow a, a, a harvest. This happened... This happened at the end. So there, there's years started at the end of a harvest. So they would, they would, the harvest would end. They would take that and they would put it in the barn. They would have that for the next year, and that would be the beginning of their either the the seventh year or, or uh, the year of jubilee, which we'll get to next. So let me go on. The um, year of jubilee. Now, that, remember, that was every seven years, the year of Jubilee. And, Mo, and he continues, God speaking to Moses, says, And you shall count seven Sabbath, seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. Seven times seven years. You see all the sevens? Seven times seven. So, 49, and the time of the seventh Sabbath shall be to you 49 years. So, in that 49th year, guess what? That's a Sabbath. So no planting, no harvesting. God's provided up front, so you're taken care of. Then you shall cause the trumpet of Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month on the Day of Atonement. Okay, there's your first hint right there. That there's a reference to Christ here because it's Day of Atonement. We'll get to it in a minute. You shall make the trumpet sound throughout the land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land and all of its inhabitants. In verse 13, in the year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. So, two things already. One, it was the second year in a row of no sowing and no reaping, but God providing up front for you. That's a pretty good deal. The next thing is, everybody returned to their own possessions. 
So it was almost like, well, it was. It was a reset button to where their entire economy got reset. And this, this applied to land. This applied to possessions. This applied to debt. And applied to even persons. So what are we talking about? Well, uh, in their economy, they didn't have sophisticated means of insurance contracts, bankruptcy laws, and things like that, that that we have in our modern economy today that allow us to, to handle situations where people incur debts. So you remember that the children of Israel, when they came into the promised land, God carved out different parts and it went to different tribes. And so then the tribes within those, within those peoples would then divide up the land amongst their, their families. But we know that over the course of time, what happens is people trade, people make good deals, they make terrible deals, they, uh, they have some misfortune in their family, and because of that, uh, sometimes people had to sell off a possession, or they had to sell off land, or in some cases, they even sold themselves into slavery. But what the year of Jubilee was, is it was a reset. So in actuality, there really were no sales. The sales were really a lease that was going to be up on the year of Jubilee. So that would affect the price, wouldn't it? So that's what he says here in verse 16. According to the multiple of years, you shall increase the price, and according to the fewer number of years, you shall diminish the price. For he sells to you according to the number of years of the crops. So if you had a piece of land, and it was, let's say, it was 40 years until Jubilee, then you could sell somebody the land, and that the understanding would be that they would have that, they would have that land until the year of Jubilee. That would be 40 years of crops that they would be able to generate. But if you sold the land in the 45th year, where you only had five years left, that's going to bring a different price, isn't it? Because now you're all, that person you're selling it to, and you're not supposed to defraud them, but that person is going to have to give you the land back in five years. They're only going to have five years' use of that land before they have to give it right back to you. So there was a couple of points to, the, to this. And one was just practically the idea of um, that people were not sold into slavery or bankruptcy or lose their possessions in perpetuity. It was their way of handling this type of situation. But also, on a spiritual level, it was a reminder that God gave them that land. They did not, they not own that land. That was a possession that God afforded to them. So how can you really sell something you don't own? And so I think that's, that's applicable for us today is to remember that we're stewards of the things that we have here, not really owners of those things, and even more so in their case. Um, and then next there was, um, and the land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. 
in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. And redeeming the land means that that land went back uh, to the original owner. Again, that was true for the land. It was true for possessions. It was true for persons that had to sell themselves into slavery. And it was true for debt as well. So let's briefly look at the Day of Atonement. Remember I told you that that's your first key as to what that's a reference to. The, the year of Jubilee began on the Day of Atonement, and the trumpet was sounded on that particular day throughout the land. Well, the Day of Atonement, if you'll remember, was a day for the children of Israel. Um, it was a remembrance of sin. So every year, People had their daily sacrifices that they had to carry on. Uh, but then every year, the high priest had some special duties that he had to perform. We see this is a picture uh, of a priest, and there's, I've got this on there so you can see. There was a holy place and a most holy place. Now, I will tell you right up front that that would not be the robe that the high priest would wear because he's about to be in the presence of God, and, and God's not going to allow him to come up with this fine dress, and you know he's just a man, and he's to understand that. And so uh, we'll show you a robe here in a minute that looks more like the robe that he would wear. But anyway, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest came in, and he had to, he had to, uh, he had to sanctify the, the holy place and the most holy place for, the, for his sins, for the sins of his house, for the sins of the people. Now, remember, he's making daily sacrifices, but there's a remembrance of that. And so the high priest once a year had to come in and do these things. I will tell you, it was a very scary and exhausted time. There's one time where he gets, he brings in this censer with fire and incense, and he puts it before the Lord, and, and God's presence was here. Uh, it's called the mercy seat right there. Um, God's presence was there, and this fire and incense was to, to cover God's presence, lest he die. Pretty serious. So this is, this is an exhausting, this is a scary day uh, for this man that's going to come in to the presence of God. And this is the one time a year that anyone ever went within the veil. And so um, we see that uh, and I'll tell you another real quick story here about the, the Day of Atonement. Um, there, was a, there were two goats that were taken, and one was to be slain and taken, their blood was to be used as a sacrifice, and they sprinkled it inside on, on the, the uh, articles inside there. But there was one that, they, that the priest put his hands on, and he was sent out in the wilderness, out of the camp of Israel, and he was called the scapegoat and so that's a I don't I don't hear that term as much as I used to when I was younger but scapegoat is the idea of it's the one that carries this the blame for a situation so something comes up and no one wants to take the blame we blame Zach Zach becomes the scapegoat even though he may or may not have anything to do with with the, with the uh, transgression so that's the scapegoat um, so the robe that he would look that he would be wearing would, would look a lot more like that, would be just a white linen uh, gown. Uh, so now 
let's move in the New Testament, and here's what, uh, here's what the Hebrew writer says. He says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. He spent chapter 7 talking about how much better the New Testament is and the New Covenant and the new priesthood of Jesus Christ as opposed to the old priesthood. He says, we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. This is not talking about the high priest that we see here. This is a reference to Jesus Christ. More directly in, in the, the, the reference here in Romans chapter 8, it says, It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God and who makes intercessions for us. That's what a priest does, is he makes intercessions. He's a go-between between the people and God. That's what he did in the old law. That's what Jesus Christ does for you and does for me. Another hint that that's the case is when Jesus was killed on the cross. You remember what happened in the temple? The veil that, that separated and the temple was nothing more than a uh, fancy building, a permanent building for the tabernacle, and, and, but it had the same structure of holy place and most holy place, and there was a veil. And so what happened when Jesus was crucified was what? The veil was rent, not from the bottom like a man would tear it, but from the top down, signifying that the way to the holiest of all, heaven, was made available because of the death and sacrifice of this man. So again, when you look at the timing, it's, it's very clear uh, that the reference is to Christ. Uh, now there is one, uh, I'll bring this up because there are some writers that believe that uh, we're not in the year of Jubilee yet. They're saying, what they would say is uh, that the year of Jubilee starts at the day of uh, uh, the, the last day, when the world ends and there's a salvation, that's the, that's the that's actually the year of jubilee. I, I don't tend to prescribe that. I know God makes us the partakers of the divine nature here and now. We're redeemed now, and so I tend to uh, uh, align myself with those that believe that we're already in the year of jubilee through Jesus Christ. But I wanted to share this because. Uh, it does say the trumpet sounded, and, and we know that that was something that was to broadcast that, and we remember that the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of an arch, archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ would rise first. So this is in reference to when their time is no more, and, and Jesus redeems his people. So again, you could make an argument for that, but either way, we're saying that those blessings are only available through Jesus Christ. Okay, so uh, a, a few key points here. There are three main things to uh, the year of Jubilee. One, it was to be a rest. It was to be a rest for the land. There was to be a release, and there was to be a restoration. So we're going to look at these one at a time and do it fairly quickly. Rest, release, and restoration. The rest, number one, it allowed the land to recover. I think that's pretty practical. 
God understood before man understood that if you plant crops year after year after year, that is draining the soil of those, those uh, nutrients that are going to be needful, and so the soil is going to need a rest. So not only did it shadow, foreshadow for us, it served a practical purpose uh, for the children of Israel. Next, it required work in the sixth year. You think about that bumper crop that's coming in. Someone's going to have to put that up. And I think that's a reminder to us that right now, we ought to be busy in the Lord's vineyard, working and doing all we can uh, to bring souls, lost souls, uh, to Jesus. It's also a reminder that God sustained Israel. So think about that you know, every seven years, and then again, the two years in a row, the year of Jubilee, you had God sustaining Israel over this period of time, just like he does us. And sometimes, because ours is not necessarily a physical sustaining, although he does that as well, it's the spiritual sustaining and sometimes we can take that for granted and think that that's not that important when it is. Um, God provided this guarantee up front. So rather than, rather than you taking his word that Jesus is going to come someday and die on the cross and you have, to, you have to buy into that possibility, he paid it up front. It says, now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. Christ was the first fruits from the dead. If you remember uh, the day of Pentecost, now probably when you think of the day of Pentecost, you think about Acts chapter 2. Well, the day of Pentecost was 50 days after the Passover. So again, you have the year of Jubilee, which was really a celebration of God's harvest. You have the day of Pentecost, which was the same thing. It was, it's also called the Feast of Harvest, Feast of Tents, Feast of Weeks. And it is a, it's, a, it, it's when Israel came together to thank God for providing a harvest for them, that they would, that they would have enough food to make it to the next year. And so they got together to do that. And so it's interesting to me that in Acts chapter 2, um, we have the first fruits as Peter delivered the first gospel sermon there in Acts chapter 2, and there were 3,000 souls added to the, they were baptized and added to the church. Jesus promised that he would build his church, and he began to do this in Acts chapter 2. Uh, again, that coincides with Pentecost, and penta means 50 and again, so Jubilee was 50 years, Pentecost was 50 days, and it coincides and lines up that way. Again, I don't think that's an accident. I think that's the, the divine inspiration of God and should give us great faith uh, to his, to his uh, faithfulness to us. And then there is, a, there is a rest for the people of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest. He's talking to Christians. And he says, You need to be diligent to enter into that rest. Why? Lest anyone should fall according to the same example of disobedience. What example of disobedience? The children of Israel. The fact that after all those blessings, 
after every seven years, they had this bumper crop as a reminder that God was their salvation. They still didn't follow his law. And so, so the writer here says, be warned about that and understand that there is a rest out there for the people of God. Again, I think God set this in motion uh, from the very first, from Genesis chapter 2, when he set the world in motion. So the next thing was then a release. There was a release from slavery. There was a release from debt. You know, they were, they, if, you had sold, if you had sold yourself into slavery, or you had incurred this large debt, it was, a, it was a trap that you could never get out of. And so f imagine how thankful they were when that year of jubilee got around. And not only so, you were more thankful if you were one that had really incurred a debt or maybe had to sell yourself or your family into slavery, those kind of things, and you were able to uh, extract yourself because of this, uh, this year of ju jubilee. Well, so we know as Christians that we have a slavery to sin that we can only get out of by one course, Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Because the wages of sin is death, and we've all done that. Jesus said this. He says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had uh, nothing which to repay, he freely forgave them both. And he asked his disciples, tell me, which of them will love him more? And Peter responded and said, well, I suppose the one that he forgave the most. And, and Jesus said, you have you've judged correctly. That's right. So think about us today that we've incurred a debt that we can never pay. We are trapped in a slavery that we could never extract ourselves from except in the hands of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the idea of redemption. Redemption or restoration is important. So the beauty here is that God could reclaim his children no matter how big the mess they had gotten themselves into. So they may have sold all their property, they may have sold all their family, they had no possessions, but on that year of Jubilee, there was to be a restoration. There's also this idea that's kind of portrayed in, in verse 25 of the idea of a kinsman redeemer. It says, if, if one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some possessions, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. So you sell something to get yourself out of a mess, and you have uh, some, some kinsman, a brother or an uncle, or a, someone comes along and they have the, the wherewithal to buy that back, then they, have, they can do that. They have a right to do that, and the, the, the buyer would then have to sell that back. That brings up the idea of kinsman redeemer. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Is when he came when he came here and he lived as a man, in a sense he became our brother. And he bought back what we could not buy back through his sacrifice on the cross. A kinsman redeemer. It was to restore to the original condition. It was to make us right. Think about them as 
every 50 years, things went back to the families the way that God had intended it. Just like he does with us, he restores even the, whatever mess we make, he can restore us to a relationship uh, with God. So in closing this morning, I've just got a few questions for you. Are you thankful for the release? Are you thankful for your release from sin, that you were, you were trapped and you were in a spot you could, you could never get yourself out of by yourself? But Jesus paid that price. So are we thankful for that release? Do we acknowledge him as our sustaining force? Uh, to a certain extent physically, but more on, on a spiritual nature. And then, think about the year of Jubilee. Those people, that would have been, especially to people who were in debt, you think they would be excited? They would be excited beyond imagination that that year of Jubilee was getting there. So I would ask the question this morning, as Christians, are we excited still about Jesus Christ and about what he offers us? And then finally, are we really looking forward to his return? There's a time that he's going to come back, and we've talked about this before. In America, it's really easy to look around and go, you know, I got it pretty good. Things are going well. I feel all right. Uh, COVID's not that much fun. I would be glad when that's over. But in general, life in America is pretty good. And especially if you put that in relationship or relative to other people's lives throughout the world, uh, both in this time and, and times past. Our lives are pretty good. So it's, it's easy for us to, to maybe lose sight of there's a day when, God's gonna, when, when Jesus is going to come back to this earth. And we need to long for that. We need to look forward to that because he's going he's to take us to a home that's better than this one. There's going to be a restoration of a relationship between us and God that is really uh, beyond even what we're experiencing today. So let's be a grateful people. Let's be thankful to God for all he's provided. If the church can help you, we're going to sing a song of invitation. And uh, we would just ask if anyone has anything they'd like to bring before the church, then if you'd come and sit on the, uh, the front pews uh, while we sing, then we would be happy to serve you.